Hi, I'm Kirsty Gallagher, and this is Give Us Your Goals, the podcast which finds out how some of the biggest names in sport and entertainment go about achieving their dreams. In this episode, I speak to one of Britain's most successful swimmers of all time, Mark Foster. During his long career in the pool, he collected 51 international medals, including six at the World Championships. He broke eight world records, competed at five Olympic Games, and was selected as Team GB's flag bearer at the 2008 Games in Beijing. In our conversation, he tells me why he thinks being around people who were better than him made him strive harder towards achieving his goals, and why it's important to learn from everything you do, irrespective of whether you see the outcome as a success or a failure. Give Us Your Goals is a paid promotion by online investment platform Best Invest. Mark, I am thrilled to welcome you on Give Us Your Girls. Thank you so much for coming on. Now, I want to talk about the fact that, actually, I believe you didn't originally, originally, when you were younger, want to be a swimmer necessarily. What what exactly did you want to do? <laughs> uh, I'm always amazed and fascinated with people that, from a young age, know what they want to do and off they go and doing it. Because I think most people sort of figure it out along the way. Um, swimming only happened because I happened to be good at it. But as a kid, yes, I wanted to be a pilot. And I'm not sure that's because I wanted to fly away from where I was <laughs> or this sort of fascination. And I'm still fascinated by uh, this tin can that gets in the sky and how the how, how physics works. It's still fascinating. It's incredible, isn't it? It really is. So then how did, you know, so you didn't become a pilot. You were, you were a great nope. swimmer, as you said. You were were you at this point swimming regularly as as a child? Was there you know your 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 family your parents were sort of like okay, there's uh, definitely something in this. <laughs> well, I did become the world record holder at fifty butterfly, which in short is fly. So I suppose in a sense I was a pilot. I won the fifty meter fly world record. Um, no, so yeah, an early age, five years of age, I learned to swim. Uh, like every every other kid, it's a life skill, so it's important we learn. But so I just went along and did the basics. I had no fascination with swimming. I just got in the water and learned doggy paddle, one arm drills, the technical side of swimming, so to speak. My swimming teacher was a lady called Mrs. Hardcastle, and she was the mother of a girl called Sarah Hardcastle, who went to the Olympics and won a silver and bronze medal in '84 Olympics in Los Angeles. At this point, Sarah was six and I was five, so we didn't know how good she was going to be and didn't know how fast I was going to be. But Mrs. Hardcastle clearly had a good eye. So I went off my swimming lessons. She saw something in me. I was probably like most, I think most human beings, but probably sports people a little bit more, this sort of trait of being ultra competitive. Uh, and every time I got in the pool, I tried to beat the others to the other side. And Mrs. Hardcastle saw something in me. She had, as I say, she had a good eye. And then I went on and joined the swimming club. So yes, I was swimming. Swimming was never going to be, I, I never thought of it as a career because it's not, I mean, premiership football, it's not. It's not a sport you get into for a career. It's a, it's a hobby and a pastime. But what happened there was within the swimming club, I met friends. So my kind of peer group and my mates became swimming. So that's why I chose swimming. Although I was a county basketball player and other things, swimming kind of chose me in a sense. Yeah. So when was that point that, that swimming wasn't just a hobby, wasn't just something that you were good at? and talented at, but became something that was a profession for you and you thought, right, okay, I can I can make a living in, in this sport? 
<laughs> was it ever clear? It took clear? a long time. <laughs> <laughs> it took a long time. Um, so I, I, I was the fastest 11-year-old in the world. So I was clearly Incredible. very good at swimming. I got a scholarship to Millfield School. So swimming enabled me to go and get an education. I was surrounded by some of the best swimmers in the country. Uh, and I always say that to people, surround yourself with people better than you. Uh, and then from that experience at Millfield School, I made my first Olympics. There's still no money in the sport. I'm 18 years of age. I make the Olympics in Seoul in 88. I go, I compete, we come fourth in the relay. I think I came 20th individually. I came home and went, all right, well, what am I going to do now? Because there was no money in swimming. So I worked as a groundsman. I fitted double glazing windows. I worked as a career driver. I worked as a lifeguard. I tempted in council offices. Wow. I kind of did things to make ends meet. Uh, and it was only after I kind of swam part-time then. And I, I went to the Commonwealth Games in 1990. I won a bronze medal on the back of doing next to nothing. So I thought, well, I'm kind of still good at this. Uh, and then I got back in the water just about nine months before the Olympic Games in Barcelona, like full-time. Uh, came sixth in the 50 freestyle. So, so I was now 22 years of age. And Speedo said to me, well, clearly I had potential and I was good and they wanted to be partnered with me and they, they sponsored me. Uh, and then I kind of went, ah, now swimming's my job. So it put a whole new spin and perspective on things. So to answer your question, I didn't become a full-time swimmer until I was 22. Yeah, really. And when would you say that you started setting yourself goals realistically? Probably at the age of 11. No, actually, pretty before that. So when I was six years of age and I joined the swimming club, I was in the, the shallow end of the pool. It's a big, you can imagine a long pool. Now I started off in the shallow end at six years of age and I was in the white squad. And I remember looking up to the deep end of the pool and there was a black squad and it was white, yellow, blue, green, red. There was about seven squads to the black squad. And I remember looking at those guys and thinking, big, strong, fast, cool. Right? So I always remember thinking I want to get to the black squad, but being in the white squad and swimming once a week and starting in the back of the lane, I kind of figured out pretty quickly I needed to get to the front of the lane to make it into the yellow squad, the next lane, and slowly make my way towards the deep end of the pool. So I guess six years of age, that process happened subconsciously in my brain. And then uh, after becoming the fastest 11-year-old in the world, Duncan Goodshoe, I saw him. Olympic Games in Moscow, the first time I saw swimming on TV. So I thought, I swim, he swims, he's on my telly. And then the bigger bit happened. He did a road show around the UK. And he came to my swimming club about a year later. So I was 11 years of age. He turned up. I was in awe, obviously, because I'd seen this guy on the telly. He, he told us his story. He showed us his Olympic gold medal. And he, he told us his story, how he became from learning to swim, becoming Olympic champion. And we all touched it and thought, oh, we want one of them. That looks awesome. That looks very, very cool. <laughs> Big thing for me, though, he stood on the pool side and said, how many strokes for me to get from here to there, our, our big pool? And we all put our hand up and guessed. Uh, anyway, it's a true story. It's a breaststroke. It's a long stroke. It's what Adam Peaty does. And it took him three strokes. <gasps> and I remember going at that moment, I went, wow, that is incredible. What's possible with the human body when you obsess and teach it to do something over and over and over again? But I thought, I want to be like Duncan Gucci. I want to go to the Olympic Games. I want to win an Olympic gold medal. And that happened at 11 years of age. So that's where the Olympic dream began rather than trying to make the black squad. Mm, amazing. Amazing. And of course, the amount of hard work that you, you needed to be doing, at the, even at the age of 11. Just tell us a bit about your, I want to 
get an idea of your regime later on as you're training for Olympics, etc. But as a child, it's really tough, isn't it? And there must have been days where you were getting up at five in the morning, surely. Uh, you know, yeah. it's all right in the summer, but in the winter, it's it's pretty bleak. How did you keep going? And, and just tell us a little flavour of how difficult that was, I guess. Um, I suppose, first of all, the, the keeping going bit was round to my support network, which I'll probably say my mum is the most important person, but then teammates, because I always say to anybody, if you're enjoying what you're doing, it's fun, then it's not work, it's not a job. I just looked at it as swimming was, and sport is, to me, a game. So later on in life, when my job was my game, which was my pastime and my love, I thought I was the luckiest man alive. But going back to when I was a kid, my driving force and my inspiration was my mum. She used to get me up at five o'clock, give me breakfast at 5.15, put me in the car at 5.30. I'd be in the water by 5.45 and I would swim until eight o'clock every morning. So Monday to Friday before school, I'd have done two, two and a quarter hours, plowing up and down the pool up to eight kilometres every morning before I got to pool, to school. I was known as chlorine boy at a very early age. <laughs> But Bless you. I was the cleanest kid in school, let me of tell you. you were. <laughs> They're like, here he, here he comes. <laughs> Eau de chlorine, yeah. they used to call me. <laughs> I love that. Oh my gosh. It must have been tough. So yeah, but it was it was but I think the thing was, <laughs> I never and this is probably one of my great traits, I don't think too much. I just I'm a doer, not a thinker. So getting in the water early in the morning, was it the nicest thing in the world? No. But because my mates were there and we did it together, I didn't go, oh, I'm getting in the water at 5.45 before I go to school. And all my schoolmates, my other friends at school, are lying in bed nice and warm and cosy. I was like, oh, no, I'm here with my mates and we're, we're training together. So that's the way that I processed and the, the way that I looked at everything. And it is, yeah, it's like that sort of autopilot thing. And I guess that that's the way you learnt as you went on to then train for those huge events like the Olympics, the Commonwealth Games, you know, the European Championships. All the while, though, and just harking back to the financial side, the support side, yeah. you know, back when you were competing, it was tough. I mean, it's not nowadays where, I mean, and we touched on sort of, yeah, Speedo Kit came in and you thought, right, sponsorship, job. But how did you keep going knowing that, you know, financially, like you, I'm sure you saw many kids dropping out because they couldn't keep going. Yeah. Uh, and, and if you don't know whether you're going to achieve or be the top top British swimmer, why should you, I guess? That must have been a, a difficult kind of thing to weigh up, was it, Mark? It was, yes. And I, I think the, 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 the interesting thing along, and everybody's got their journey in sport or their journey in life, but along the way, certain people gave up so all of a sudden i i, I lost my i'm gonna say my work colleagues some of my my, my peer group but and i i always say to people this is more in my mind although you put yourself in the right place more luck than judgment that i mentioned at 13 i got a scholarship to go to millfield school and at 13 i arrived at millfield i was fastest 13 year old in the world but when i arrived at millfield you've got 15 16 18-year-olds, obviously senior school people, but they're on the national senior team and the national intermediate team. And I was on the national youth squad, you know. So they were faster than me, bigger than me, stronger than me. That same process of making the black squad, I had people around me that were better than me. So what I was very good at doing, which I didn't think about, I just did it, uh, was looking at the better swimmers, 
the way that they they swam, the way that they dived in, they turned, what they all they did technically, and probably the most important thing, the way they behaved outside the pool, and slowly but surely, their habits became my habits. And I talk to people about creating good habits and healthy choices because it's all about choices first of all before it comes a habit um i had people around me that, that were doing things the right way so all of a sudden by copying them just because that's what i did i think that's what we all do we, we look up to other people and we we copy them or aspire to be other people so those traits i say more luck than judgment by being around people that are better than me made me a better athlete and you, you said you said earlier about motivation i realized that very early on at Millfield at 13 years of age, when I arrived there, the person that was most pleased was my mum, right? Because my mum's like, right, you're out of my hands. <laughs> and she now got lines. She could now stay in bed. She didn't have to get up early in the morning and push me and motivate me and pull me from left, right and centre. So uh, it dawned on me that when I didn't turn up, I got in trouble with my coach. When I didn't turn up, I didn't get any faster. So I kind of went, oh, I'm, right, I need to take responsibility for myself here. If I don't get up in the morning, if I turn that alarm off and I don't make it to the pool, I don't train and therefore I don't get better. So I associated training and turning up with results. So I kind of, that was my little aha moment that no one's going to do it for you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely right. Absolutely right. And let's just, you know, you, you won 51 international medals, competed at five Olympic Games, World European and Commonwealth titles you've held, smashed uh, eight world records. I mean, it's unbelievable. Yeah. Could you pick? I mean, it's pretty hard to pick, surely. Your proudest moment out of any of those? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, all of them? It's kind of, yeah. I, okay, so I'll do the outside the pool first. Yeah. Outside the pool, carrying the Olympic, fifth Olympic Games and carrying the flag at the opening ceremony. That was awesome. Um, it wasn't obviously a swimming performance, but it was the acknowledgement by my peer group that I was uh, nominated to be the flag yeah. bearer. And that was Beijing, I think, was it? That was Beijing in 2008. And the bird's nest, 85,000 people screaming and shouting for the Chinese, but we pretended they were screaming yeah, and shouting I remember us. it well. But to be nominated by my peer group, to have that uh, honour, was amazing. Uh, and then in the pool, I suppose I can't pick out a medal. Oh, actually I can. So let's go, I'll, go, I'll go two. Breaking the world record, becoming the fastest human being on the planet. So the 50 freestyle is the fastest stroke. It's the fastest event. So breaststroke and Adam Peaty take it. You know, my event is Usain Bolt at the track. Adam Peaty is like a long jumper, right? My event is the fastest human being on the planet. So for that moment, I was the fastest human being on the planet, although it got broken and records are there to be beaten. For those couple of times I broke it, I was a man. So that was pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. uh, and then medal-wise... I would say 2004 Olympics, I didn't qualify. I was injured before the Olympics. I won't go into the long, long story, but I was injured before the Olympics. Uh, I got on the block. I tried to qualify. I missed the time for the Olympic Games by 300 of a second. The performance director said I wasn't going to go. So I was 34, sat at home. The team went to Athens, and I was like, why are you still doing this? You're 34, which is old for a swimmer. You've achieved an awful lot. You know, maybe your body's telling you something. And I had a word with myself and I went, okay, well, look, this has happened to you. You can't change what's happened, but what you can change is what happens in the future. And six months after those trials and after the Olympic Games was the World Championships in Indianapolis. So I went, okay, right, this is not the end of my story. 
I'm going to qualify for the World Championships in Indianapolis. I'm going to step on that block and let's see what happens. Well, the team went off. I spoke to physio, coaches, did my rehab work, basically trained while the team went happens. Qualified for the World Championships in Indianapolis. Went to Indianapolis on US home soil and I won the World Championships. So I suppose that's my most important medal, which is the Worlds in 2004, because it was turning something negative into something positive not giving up and, yeah, get out on my own terms. Mm, we can all learn so much from that. That is so important, what you've just said. And do you, do you I mean, I know you do a lot of speaking uh, amongst other things, which we'll talk about in a minute. I mean, I, I that's important to, 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 I suppose, tell youngsters of today, especially athletes in this competitive, competitive world nowadays. Would you agree? Yeah, absolutely. I always say to people, which is, you're going to be as good as you can be. Right, there's there's only one Adam Peaty out there. There's only one Michael Phelps out there. You can be. Uh, it sounds stupid because it sounds cheesy and cliche, but you know you can only be the best version of yourself. And if you know you've done everything possible to succeed, then you can't ask any more. Uh, I didn't want to be one of these people that that was a could have, would have, should have. I wanted to be someone that did not did achieve my ultimate dream, but gave it a go to achieve to achieve it. So I always say to people that. I don't think there's any such thing as failure. I think of the word fail. That every time you do something, you get a result. You learn something. Hopefully you learn something and you grow. And I think as humans, we like growing. So I think of fail from action, I learn. So you do something, you get a result. Might not be the result you want, but go again, go again, go again. Until I mean, the definition of madness is doing the same thing over and over and over again. So make sure you change something. But yeah, I just looked at it as a, as, as a learning curve. So I, I, And I think any athlete will tell you this which is they learned more from losing than they did from winning. Because when you win, you go, oh, that's cool. That's what I aim to do. But when you lose, you're like, why do I lose? So you have to look a little bit deeper. That's so true. I mean, listen, I'm, my two boys, I used to quite enjoy, well, still, I quite enjoy, but they've learned now, when they don't win. Because Jude, for example, who's only 12, used to have a hissy fit when he lost or <laughs> moody. And I said, stop it right now. Do you think you're going to win everything in life, not just sport? Oh, well, I, yeah. I said, stop it right now. I'm glad you lost because you need to feel that. You need to learn. You need to realise what you now need to do. And it is so true. And they have both done very well and can deal with losing, winning, indifference. And, and as I always say to my two, you know, as long as you try, you really try, you know, that's all you can do. And you're, you're absolutely right. Regards winning and medals, Mark, you didn't ever win an Olympic title. No. Was that ever a problem for you? Or did you come to terms with that? Did you, did you come make peace with that? Uh, no, I made peace with it. I think it probably, just because the mindset I've got maybe, um, but I also realised that, I'm going to use a cheesy cliche, I saw the Olympic goal was as reaching for the stars, and by reaching for the stars, I didn't make the stars, but I landed on the moon and I won lots of other bits and pieces. So, but I also think that things don't happen and things aren't possible unless you believe they're possible. So, my reflection was that I wasn't meant to be an Olympic champion, but I won six world championships and then European championships. Now, why didn't it happen at the Olympic Games? And I kind of looked into that a little bit, but I kind of went 18 years of age. I came from a sport in this country was completely amateur. So we're up against 
the Americans, we know the Americans are strikingly a brilliant sport, but it's because they've got the structure, they've got the best pools, the best coaches, and they're surrounded by the best athletes. And I, this is one of the things I learned throughout my career is surround yourself with people better than you, uh, and you push and motivate one another. So I was up against this American program that was very professional. In the UK, it was kind of like, oh, if you were good in Southend on sea in Essex, well done, good on you, well done for trying sort of thing. So we didn't have the mentality, but we didn't have the support network. 92, so that was my first Olympics. 92 Olympics, I came sixth, and I was really chuffed to make the final. I was point two off getting third, and I was really chuffed. Again, Russia, you think of the system they've got in place over there. So Russia, America, these big, huge nations, they've got better systems. So then I went, okay, 92 Olympics, sixth. I was really pleased, became a professional athlete. Speedo sponsored me. That was a changing in my attitude and, and my professionalism towards the sport. 96 Olympics, two years before, I trained with a coach in Cardiff, and I'm not blaming him for anything, but it's kind of like one of those things, it takes time, unless you're lucky, it takes time to find the right ingredient, the right coach that's going to give you the right training in the right environment. It didn't work, for whatever reason it didn't work. So that was 96 Olympics. 2000 Olympics, I think the best shape of my life, and I came seventh, and I just missed out again, but I thought it was the best shape of my life at that moment, at 30 years of age. Then I mentioned Athens been injured beforehand so at the world's the year before i came second probably looking back that's not probably it would have been my best opportunity but i didn't go and then four years later i came back in uh, beijing in 2008 and i was 38 years of age now realistically i was past my best i was still good i made the team but i was past my best so if i kind of reflect to those i can look at reasons um and if things would have been slightly different and i try and say to people that if I said to you on September the 1st, 1996, at five minutes past six in the evening, you've got to be in the best performance of your life. And it's once every four years. So if it doesn't happen, you've got to wait another four oh. years for it to happen again. And also looking back when I was a kid that met Duncan Gucci and that Olympic gold was the holy grail, so to speak. Every time I got to the Olympics, and it was once every four years, it was like, oh, my God, it's the Olympics. I've got to do it. I've got to do it. I've got to do it. I've, got to, I've really got to make this happen, as opposed to Worlds, Europeans, Commonwealths. Well, Commonwealths every four years, but um, they're every two years. So I had more opportunities at doing them. So I think I felt more relaxed at that moment, as opposed to, oh, my God, this is the Olympics. I've got to make it happen. And you don't make it happen. You've got to let mm. it happen. No, so right. So right. Well, I can imagine. I, I, I don't know how. I mean, it's so difficult to think of four years training for one well, for a, for a couple of med- important medals, but but not, you know, if it doesn't quite happen, you're like, so you're absolutely right. And that, I think that's that's a very good way of thinking as well to have, you know, the shorter term goals rather than longer. And all the while, while you were, if we just move it on again, you were still yeah. competing. Were you always thinking financially about your future? And were you were you sensible about that? I mean, personally, about your sort of, Okay, I need to be putting this money away. We don't know what's going to happen. Obviously, it was a different time as well, and things things move on. How how did you kind of structure that? The early days, when like I say, first sponsor, and then in '96 in Atlanta because the team did so badly, we got one gold medal, which was Redgrave and Pinson. So no one, else, there was no other gold medals anywhere from any sport at the Olympic Games. Com- compare that to now, and we come back with twenty five golds or 20 golds but it was one and UK sport looked at it and from 
from sport and the arts from the government, we've got we got funding that came into the sport. So in '96, at 26 years of age, for me I was 26. We kind of a court where we were going to turn a corner and catch America up that we were going to now invest in sport. Whereas before it was kind of like if you were good, great, well done, thank you very much. You're 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 making Britain look good from a sporting perspective, but it comes down to individuals. Whereas now we had a a system behind us and financial system in place, so it enabled athletes that were part-time athletes to become professional athletes. And on the back of that, obviously, lottery funding came in, which gave a few quid. Then I had sponsors. And then I I realized pretty quickly on performance-related, the better I did in the water, the more medals I won, the more records I broke, I got bonuses. And at certain competitions, there was was prize money. So it kind of, I was, it was all about performance-related pay, but I was very aware that if I didn't perform, I didn't earn. So that's why probably I was a better athlete, because I was rewarded for for performance rather than just turning up. But I was never, I went through a phase probably like most kids of, oh, I've, I've got this. So I, and it wasn't a lot of money. It wasn't football, but oh, I spend a bit more. Or, you know, I want to design a clothes or I want to this, that and the other. And yeah, I went through a phase of that. Fortunately for me, it didn't last too long. <laughs> um, but I was always aware that, yeah, I was aware that when this finished, what would I do next? I didn't plan for what I was going to do next. But I was also aware that when it did finish, I needed a little bit of a security, so to speak. So I was I was never blasé about buying this big flash car and doing X, Y, and Z. I was sort of in the middle, I suppose, a bit of middle ground. Uh, but I always knew, I go back to that period from when I was 18 to 21, when I worked as a career driver, double glazing, worked on a building site, hog carrying, plasterboard fitting and doing all these things. I kind of realised that if this didn't work, and it didn't turn out the way I wanted it to. And I didn't know I didn't know where I was going to go in my swimming career. I could always turn myself to I knew I was a doer. I learned very early on I couldn't sit at a desk, slightly dyslexic, uh, and I found it very hard to concentrate on I'm gonna call it work, paperwork. I saw that as work because it was yeah. hard. But I was a doer, so I'm good at using my body. So I thought, well, I'll do manual labour, I'll do something if this doesn't work out. So I kind of I hadn't figured it out. I didn't have a master plan, but I felt comfortable that uh, I'd morph into something else. And you're still a doer because you're doing so much. Commentary, punditry, philanthropist, businessman. What do you enjoy most? We've got to talk about Strictly as well in a minute. But, but, (laughs) um, (laughs) you know, you left um, a life as an athlete. I know you're, you're massively into your training still and you look incredible. What do you enjoy most now? Uh, what do I enjoy most? <laughs> Time on the golf course. Do you? <laughs> that's my that's that's my selfish place. Well, that's my happy place because I, I I think the thing is, it, it enables me to 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 have my personal goals, my competitive side, playing other people. I think the beauty about golf is I, I look thought about it is it, is it a sport? It's a sport. It's a game. It's not a you don't need to. It's not like getting from A to B as fast as possible. No, it's an art. I call it. I call it an art. An art, that's right. I mean, yeah. it's hard so, work, isn't it? I like four hours walking around with different people and you get to meet people and share stories. So I think the, the social side is the most important bit. Then you're walking around in nature. So hopefully, or greenery or water or wherever you are. You've fresh air, a little bit of a walk. And as I say, you've got the, the, the goal setting personally and then playing the competition against other people. So that's my selfish go-to, do what I do when I've got nothing else to do. And outside of that, I mean, I do do a lot of talking, a lot of talking, but going to schools and hopefully 
change in the way that kids think. I mean, I might only go and talk to them for an hour or half an hour, but just trying to get them to look at the world slightly different and get them to realise that and it isn't always about, as I say, I wasn't Stephen Redgrave standing there with five Olympics, five gold medals. I think that's just greedy myself. <laughs> but You've done rather well. <laughs> so, You've got plenty of medals. But I sort of said, you know, like not achieving your ultimate dream and, and what you set out to do, that's, that's okay, right? Because there was a journey along, along the way. But have, have dreams and aspirations, aim big. Don't, don't get put off by not succeeding, but just have a go. And I think that's what I try and install in, in, and I mentioned earlier about that word fail from Action I Learn. Do something. I think like human beings, sometimes we overthink stuff and we don't move because we don't want to make mistakes. I'm like, making mistakes is growing. So have a go. You're not necessarily, you're not going to be the best at it all the time, but you'll get better by doing. Mark, you are a very modest man. My goodness me. One of our best British swimmers ever and world, across the world as well. And, and listen, just quickly and finally about Strictly Come Dancing, which... Uh, I did a few years later. You did your, I think, 2008 you competed. Um, yeah. Tell me how you found it. In fact, I think I spoke to you about it back in the day. I mean, it's a long time ago now when I did it. Yeah, we did. When you did it. I think we had a discussion before you actually went I think did we did. I didn't, put you, I didn't put you off, clearly. Well, I think I nearly, I'm I, I, not sure I should have done it. We both got kicked out. Was it six six weeks? Week six. Kicked out. Yeah. Isn't that lovely? Uh, how did you find it? <laughs> Anything like competing as a as an athlete or not really? No, I suppose I, I love the experience, taking myself out of my comfort zone and learning because it was completely. I try and explain to people with sport, you get from A to B as quick as possible. It does not matter what you look like, right? You can you can do it ugly, but just get there. Whereas <laughs> this was all about it's got to look beautiful. It's that minute and a half that you dance for has got to seem like people are watching you for five minutes. And and, and I and I was stupid to think this, but. There were 16 people on, on my year, and uh, they had eight men, eight women, and the men were the first week, women the second week, men the third week, women the fourth week, and then they came together when there was 12 left. But I stupidly, naively thought that it was a level playing field, and I'm like, okay, we're all starting at ground zero here. And if it were a 10-story house, hotel, whatever <laughs> you call it, I was on the ground floor when I started, no dance experience whatsoever. Getting me on a dance floor. I never went on a dance floor unless I was hammered <laughs> and I didn't drink that much, so it never happened. So I'm on ground zero. And I remember the first week turning up and watching a few of the other dancers. Uh, Austin Healy, <laughs> who was cheeky, confident. And uh, he, he, unfortunately for me, he was fairly good. He was on like, we, he was on like level five already before he started. <laughs> I don't know what he'd done as a kid, but he, whether it was just his confidence, yeah. I don't know. But oh, yeah, the Lester, the Lester Lip, yes, that I think they call him. I the think Lester he was Lip. always always the lip. Yeah, exactly. I think he was always <laughs> going to do well, wasn't he? But Tom Chambers, who went into the West End and did professional dance shows, he was on level nine when we started. Oh. And I just looked and just went, I mean, I was in awe because I went, wow. Yeah. That's like me turning up, at me saying, saying to everybody, okay, we're going to do a... Uh, we're going to take 10 celebs and you're going to play basketball. And everyone's going, okay, we'll, we'll learn how to play basketball. Now, I played county basketball as a kid. So it's like I'd be on level nine there when they start yeah. on level zero. <laughs> and I knew I wouldn't be able to catch them up. But what I knew was I'd have my own little bit of a journey and I'd get better and just focus on myself and just see where it took me. But it was, a, 
it was it was an eye opener. That first week walking onto the oh. dance floor, going, oh, "Where's the exit? I want to run the other." Oh, me too. Compare. I want to and finally, very finally, because that you know when that music, the, the music, and you're stood oh, yeah. in position. How frightening was that? And compare that to you. I guess it's slightly different. You trained and trained for the yeah. the, the, gu- the gun as you're stood there about to dive into the pool, but. You're out of your comfort zone. That music going on and that 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 heartbeat feeling. I mean, what was that like for you? Pretty awful, like it was for me. Uh, yeah, because it, it, again, I look at it and go, the first week horrendous. <laughs> and I remember walking out and saying to my partner Haley Holt, I said to yeah. her, "What foot do I step with first? Oh, because I just went blank. And she said, "Well, step with that." And it would t- and admittedly, once I stepped, body took over and muscle memory happened. Was it great? No, but I got around it. But th- that was the worst fear that I'd suddenly forget about what I was going to do. And when I swam, that's what I did. I knew it inside out. I didn't have to think about it. So this was very much thinking about every movement. I'll go to a quick funny story about Strictly Come Dancing. Yeah, do. I oh. did Strictly Come Dancing. And then two years later, I got asked to do the tour. Three years later, before the Olympics in 2012. Now, I was on the tour, and it was with um, Harry Judd, Robbie Savage, oh. Nancy Delalio. And, and, and Jason Donovan was on the Brilliant tour. Brilliant group. Brilliant. It was amazing. It was, um, it was, it was awesome. And uh, Anita Dobson, so yeah. Brian May's wife, yeah. I became really pally with her. She From EastEnders. She's lovely. So we're off on this tour. And then the, the first beginning of the show, pitch black, 15,000 people in the, in the arena. We go into the middle of the store, floor and we lie down on this plinth. All the pro, the celebs, not the pros. Just the, and then mm. the music starts. And then we get up and we start doing the dance. And this first evening, or every evening, for 42 shows, I remember looking in front of me and I had Jason Donovan's feet. <laughs> and I just remember going, it's Jason Donovan from Neighbours. He's <laughs> lying in front of me. <laughs> it's brilliant. I, I love, love it. Because I, I, I love Neighbours. And, and, and one of the things he taught, he taught me was, he used to go out and he used to do this sort of, look to the crowd and do all this sort of, get basically, I said to him, what are you doing? You look like a nutter. I said to him, why'd you go out there and put your arms up in the air to sort of like you're talking to the crowd? And he said, I'm getting into character. So he goes, it's not me out there. I'm playing a character. So, and I turned around to him and said, well, I've not been funny. It's very much me out there. And I think that's the thing with sport. <laughs> it's very real. It's about it's getting so made true. to be as fast as possible. I, I, I couldn't, well, I didn't have those skills, right? I was not an actor. I couldn't take myself to another place. But no, but you're fully, you're so right. And actually, it, it's it's very interesting because when you look back, although people like Austin Healy, Mark Ramprakash did rather yeah. well, but in Darren my Goff. year, yeah, yeah, they all did so well. It, it, but maybe there was, so, I, in, in my year as well, the actresses and the actors were were brilliant because they got, they, they weren't themselves. They went into this other, whereas I was paranoid going, you look like a real idiot you look like a real idiot I could have, a far worse word was used you look like yeah. an idiot i feel like an idiot and everyone's laughing at me do you know what i mean so it's quite interesting isn't it that um you you took your yeah who you are onto that dance floor i don't know what darren goff and those guys were thinking but listen mark it's been a joy as always and an honor to speak to you mark thank you so much thank you cheers bye Thanks so much for listening. If you've enjoyed the show, please do leave us a review and a rating in your podcast app. And most importantly, tell a friend about it. Give Us Your Goals is brought to you by online investment platform, Best Invest. 
Best in Best believe that a consistent approach to setting goals allows for a far more comfortable future and that your hard-earned money could work harder through being invested. If you'd like help achieving your financial goals, consider Best Invest, who offer a wide range of investments, free expert coaching, smart planning tools, and competitive pricing. Visit bestinvest.co.uk to learn more. Remember that when you invest, your capital is at risk. Best Invest is a trading name of Evelyn Partners Investment Management Services Limited, authorised and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority.